Suspend our study of Galatians for a week, and I want us to return to one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to uh, 21. I love this uh, text because it speaks God's good news to us so clearly. And I love it because it speaks in terms of this wonderful, grand theme of reconciliation. Listen as I read. We'll pick up at verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are two things woven back and forth through these verses. The fact that God reconciles us to himself, and the ministry of reconciliation which he has now established and given to us. This morning we're only going to consider that first truth, the matter of God reconciling us to himself. In order we might understand that wonderful truth, I want to set it before you in two two points. The first is this. We have alienated God by our sin. We have alienated God by our sin. Alienated is a bitter word. It's the endless violence between the Israelis and the Palestinians that seems to never cease. It's the years of bitter strife between blacks and whites in this country. It's the unspeakable hurt of children abused by adults they trusted. It's the agony of soul of parents with rebellious children. It's the angry outbursts and silent despair of a marriage breaking up. Alienation is simply the most painful thing that can happen in any relationship. That those who once knew sweet affection should now be bitterly and hopelessly estranged. That's what's happened to our relationship with our Creator. We have alienated God by our sin. Now these days we tend to think that the problem is that we feel alienated toward God. Oh, we've been too busy for God, we've missed church a little more than we should, and now we feel distant from Him. Or or He didn't give us our our desires uh, as, as we expected Him to, and now we feel a bit disillusioned with Him. A little distant. Or, or perhaps we got hurt by what God allowed to come into our lives and we resent him just a, a bit. Whatever's happened, we feel alienated from God. And so our churches everywhere try to make excuses for God and try to put a loving spin on God's acts in hopes of turning people's hearts back to the Lord in hopes of ending our feeling of alienation from him. But folks, though, all those feelings of estrangement may be very real. 
That's not how the scriptures define the problem. The problem is not primarily that we feel alienated from God. The problem is that we have alienated God. He is offended by our sin. According to God's word, our sin is no small matter. God sees it as betrayal. He made us for himself. He made us to live in sweet fellowship with him. But we have preferred the things he made over him. We have lusted after the things of the world like spiritual adulterers, loving the world more than we love him. Betrayal. God also sees it as insurrection. Our cute little way of doing our own thing is actually mutiny against God. We've rejected God's claim on us, suppressing it by our wicked actions. In order to have our own way, we've tried to take God's place as the center of our reality, as the, as the final arbiter of our truth, in order to assert our independence. We've attempted to throw off his role as creature, and our role as, create, as creature, his role as creator and our role as creatures, determine instead that we will be our own God. That's the ugly picture of mankind painted in the scriptures. Not just well-meaning people who've made some mistakes, but idolaters, adulterers, rebels, insurrectionists, pursuing our sinful desires, determined to do it our way, even if we have to orchestrate a coup against our God. Psalm 2 describes the battle cry of sinners like us. Let us break God's chains and throw off his fetters. Oh, the sin which we so quickly excuse, God sees differently. And according to the scriptures, our rebellion has incurred the wrath of the God we've alienated. Philip Hughes notes, God is not the helpless victim of the mutiny of man. His supremacy as sovereign governor of the universe is unimpaired. And so God's holiness his absolute purity and separateness from sin becomes the consuming wrath of God when it encounters such sinful rebellion. As the prophet Isaiah explains, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wicked things. God's offended. He hates our sin. He will not tolerate our sin. He will certainly put down the rebellion and destroy the rebels. We have alienated our creator by our sinful rebellion, and that's the problem we have. Well, I know everyone talks about the love of God as if it nullifies all that, but it does not. The love of God is what moved him to provide the solution that we'll consider this morning. But that love of God cannot even be understood apart from acknowledging the well-deserved wrath of God, which we have incurred by our own disobedience and rebellion against him. Dr. Philip Hughes again says, It is of particular importance to emphasize that the wrath of God is by no means a contradiction of the love of God. For God to have permitted sin to flourish 
unchecked and unpunished and passively to, to have watched the world degenerate into a dung heap of corruption and violence would have been very far removed from an expression of love. Those who speak sentimentally of the love of God as though it were incompatible with the wrath of God show that they have entirely failed to grasp the realities of the situation. This is our problem in regard to reconciliation. God is the righteous one who has been alienated. He is not someone who can be dismissed. He is the Holy One whose wrath we cannot endure. And even his love demands that he execute judgment. May I suggest that when we grasp this truth, we will be plunged into desperate despair. For if our alienation were only a matter of our neglect of God, we could take steps to fix that. But when the sovereign, holy God, the creator, the sustainer, the controller of everything, is the one we have offended by our sin, it's not in our power to fix it. It's not in our power to turn aside his consequences for our sin. That's the frightening picture presented in Revelation 21. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I must tell you, every time I read those solemn words... Fear and anguish grip my heart for a minute. For I know, and God knows, that's me. Surely I've been a coward. Surely I've been unbelieving. Surely I've been vile. And who can say he's never been a liar? Not me. But on the day of judgment, there will be no excuses. If we are guilty, and God knows we are, we will be cast into hell. Oh, how can I possibly think I will escape? How can you? The great hymn writers of the past admitted the hopelessness of our alienation. Horatius Bonar expressed it this way. Not what my hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can ease this awful load. A century earlier, Augustus Toplady understood the same thing. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come, I, come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I 
will die. What hope is there for rebels like us? We have alienated God by our sinful rebellion. Well, there's only the hope held out in this text, which brings us to our second point. Christ Jesus made peace by trading places. Christ Jesus made peace by trading places. The theme of human reconciliation makes for great movies and great literature, but no one could ever have dreamed a storyline like this of God's great plan to reconcile his enemies to himself. Now in our text this morning, we're told about it in kind of in three stages. The first stage is, in verse 18, we're simply told that God reconciled us to himself in Christ. That's no small matter, of course, because God is the one who's offended. And yet it is God who takes the initiative to reconcile his rebel creatures. He sets out to reconcile them to himself. This is the key point in understanding how God saves. It's all of him. He takes the initiative. He accomplishes the saving work. He tracks us down to apply his work to us. He holds on to us lest we would fall away. And he does it all for his own glory. It's all God reconciling. And secondly, in verse 9, we're told a bit more. Here we see that God's manner of reconciliation involves not counting our sins against us. Now, at this point, we're not told how that might possibly be true, how God could refrain, as a righteous judge, refrain from counting against us the sins of which we're guilty. But it's clear that this is what must take place if we're to have peace with God. For it is our sin that is the offense. It is our sin that demands God's wrath. Somehow that sin must be removed from God's dealings with us. This is a familiar theme in the scripture. Perhaps you remember Psalm 32, where David writes, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. A thousand years before Christ came, King David understood that his only hope, especially in light of his terrible sin in regard to Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Uriah, his only hope is that somehow God might drop the charges. That somehow his sin would not be imputed to him as he deserved. And that's our only hope as well. If we have to pay for our sins, we are doomed. You can't pay enough. But then again, how could a righteous judge just drop the charges? Just not count them against us? Well, that brings us to the third description of God's plan of reconciliation. Verse 21. God's great plan to reconcile us to himself is revealed. Here's how Christ ends our war with God and brings us peace. Let me read it, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as I've said in my third point, in the second point, Christ made peace by trading places. 
with us. On the one hand, here we are, sinful, deserving of God's holy wrath. And over here is Jesus, perfectly righteous, accepted, living in sweet fellowship with his Father. God's plan of reconciliation involves a double substitution. Christ trading places with us in God's sight, taking our status in order to give us his status. And so on the cross, Jesus took our place. He became sin for us. God took our sin and put it on Jesus, and he and punished him for it. He took our condemnation. And because of that substitution, God can refrain from counting our sins against us, for he has counted them against Jesus in our place. That's exactly what God promised through the familiar words of Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, but that's only half the plan. The second half is that God, first God counted our, our sins against Jesus and judged them so that he might then take Jesus' righteousness and put it on our account. Again, it's as if Jesus traded places with us. He took our sin and paid for them so that he might freely give us the right standing, the sweet fellowship, the, 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 the no, obstruct, no obstructions to, to relationship, the reconciliation that he knew with the Father. Oh, it's not to say that Jesus became a sinner for us. No, Jesus was always righteous. He's the God-man. And it does not say that he made us righteous. No, we're wicked when he did this. By his grace, we will eventually learn to live in the righteousness that we've been, the righteous status that we've been given. But Jesus did take our sin, which alienated us from God, and he did give us the status of righteous before God, in which we're acceptable to the Father. Christ reconciled us to God by trading places with us. That's the good news of the gospel, which is repeated throughout the Bible. Romans 5, verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free of accusation. <laughs> so who exactly then are reconciled to God? Those who are in Christ. Those for whom he died. Those whom he now calls to himself. Those who acknowledge his grace, trust him, obey his call to follow him. And what about the wicked, the unbelieving, the hypocrites, the rebels? The Bible everywhere promises that God's wrath still awaits them. In Ephesians 5, for example, we read, No immoral, impure, 
or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Even believers are warned about this in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. That's exactly the contrast set before us in Revelation 21 in that final picture. Right there where we find the promise of judgment and condemnation, the unleashing of the wrath of God. In that same passage, Christ Jesus, the great reconciler, extends the invitation of grace. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, God knows we're thirsty. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In fact, Jesus repeats that invitation in Revelation 22. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, how can Jesus extend such a promise right in the face of the wrath of God coming? Because Jesus made peace with God by trading places with us. That's the word of hope I proclaim to you this morning. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So as Christ's ambassador, as though God was making his appeal through me, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for you, that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Oh, we've alienated God by our sin. Don't think it is nothing. God's wrath is coming with frightening certainty against every wicked person. But Christ has made peace with God by trading places with us, taking our sin upon himself that he might give us a new status, his right standing before the Father as a child of God, so that on that fearful day of judgment, those who are in Christ will not be condemned. This is God's good news of reconciliation, what you've heard this morning. Believe it. Run to Jesus. Cast yourself on his mercy. Find rest for your soul. Amen. Let's pray.